This program is brought to you by Bobbleway Media, under the oversight of the elders of the Chipman Road Congregation in Lee Summit, Missouri. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to the program. This is Don Boyd. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. We're going to continue our studies in the book of Romans today. We're going to start into Romans chapter 2. In Romans 1, Paul charged that the Gentiles were guilty of many horrible sins and were worthy of death. In Romans 1.32, it states, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In Romans chapter 2, Paul deals with the sins of the Jews. In verses 1 through 16, Paul deals with the sins of the Jews in general. And then in Romans 2, 17 to 29, Paul deals with the sins of the Jews specifically. Now we want to start out at looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And in these verses, we'll find that God judges the Jews and the Gentiles impartially. Now, the Jews were judging the Gentiles as being great sinners, yet they were doing the very same things. And that's Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Romans 2, 1 says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same thing. Alright, the word therefore, there in the first part of verse 1, that refers to what was stated before, back in chapter 1. The Jews were without excuse in trying to justify their sinful need, deeds. As the Gentiles had the truth set out before them in the patriarchal law, and they violated it, the Jews had the truth set out before them in the law of Moses, and they violated it. The Jews were condemning themselves by their condemnation of the Gentiles. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, Paul states that God judges everyone according to their deeds. Romans chapter 2, verse 2. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Now, we will not escape God's punishment for sin as long as we are as guilty as the world is. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, and we'll keep your marker here in Romans 2, go to Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. It says there, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So as if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we'll reap life everlasting. In Colossians chapter two or chapter three, verse twenty-five. Colossians chapter three, verse twenty-five. Paul writes there. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. So God does not overlook the sins of the Jews. He doesn't overlook the sins of the Gentiles. And he doesn't overlook the sins of Christians who are either Jew or Gentile. In chapter 2 of Romans verse 3, it states that no one will escape God's judgment. Romans 2, verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which doest such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? You see, the Jews 
placed great emphasis on the fact that they were Abraham's descendants. Go to Matthew chapter 3, and let's look at verses 7 through 9. Matthew 3, 7 through 9. And this is John the Baptizer speaking, or who we're talking about here. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that Abraham is able of these stones, or excuse me, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So what is John the baptizer saying here to them, to the Pharisees and Sadducees? You bring forth your actions that prove that you are repentant for the sins that you are committing and don't trust just because Abraham is your ancestor that you are going to get away from God's judgment. And then he says, God can raise up children of Abraham of rocks. Also, in John chapter 8, look at verses 31 to 34. John chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. It says there, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Now you'll notice here, Jesus is talking about knowing the truth, and of course obedience to the truth will make us free from sin. Everyone that continues in sin, and that's what the word committeth there in verse 34, that's the, uh, it's in the present tense there in the Greek. Everyone that continues in sin is a slave of sin, whether Jew or Gentile. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we find God's goodness leads us to repentance. Romans 2, 4. It says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? We know from very early on in the scriptures that God is long suffering. Go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. It says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. God saw the wickedness of man. We understand that. And he gave mankind a hundred and twenty years to repent. And we know that most, the vast majority of the world, everyone but Noah's family, failed in that repentance. In 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 18 to 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. It says, For Christ also has suffered once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Of course, the word quickened there means made alive. Verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once, notice, the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. 
the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of questions out in the world today about, you know, Jesus preached to the spirits in prison. What is he talking about there? Well, Jesus, through Peter, excuse me, through Noah, preached to the world while he was preparing the ark, telling them about the flood that would be coming and such things as that. And God waited during the time that the ark was in preparing. And then only after the ark was ready did he save Noah, his three sons, his wife, and their three wives. That's the eight souls there that were saved by water. Now that's another question that comes up, especially with those who do not believe that baptism is necessary for sin. I read once in a book by a Baptist preacher and it says that his son asked him, or in letters to his son, his son may ask, but 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, says that they were saved by water. And his answer to that was, well, weren't they really saved by the ark? Well, the question becomes, are we going to believe the inspired Apostle Peter who wrote this, or are we going to believe someone who is not inspired, who does not believe the scriptures concerning baptism? So what does it mean they were saved by water? And then uses that like figure to refer to baptism. Well, the water washed away the sin of the world in Noah's day, those who were practicing sin just as baptism washes away the sin of the individual who was baptized for the remission of sins, immersed in water. Just as in Acts 22:16, whenever Ananias told Saul of Tarsus, and now why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. But now going back to where Noah preached to the world. You go to 2 Peter chapter 3, and in verse 9, it says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should come to repentance. So God does not want any to come to repentance. But then also back up a little bit in chapter 2 and in verse 5 where it says there that a God spared not the old world but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So right there we see that God or Jesus through Noah preached to the world the spirits in prison now we got to go back and address that what's he talking about there those are the ones who are in the Hadean world right now still in torments God gave them the opportunity for repentance and God gave them the time for repentance through the preaching of Noah and they refused and their physical lives were destroyed, and now they are in torments in the Hadean realm waiting for the judgment day. Now, over in Second Timothy chapter two, verse or First Timothy, excuse me, First Timothy chapter two, verse four, again speaking of God says, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. Again, God has to be long-suffering. He wants everyone to have salvation, and everyone has the opportunity for salvation. But we know from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that there will be few who take that opportunity. Matthew seven thirteen and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. 
because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it now I heard brother Guy in Woods uh, preach a lesson one time and he said that he had a man come up to him and he said that whenever Jesus comes back again for his second coming he probably figures he figures there will be no more saved at that day than there was in the flood of Noah and then Brother Wood said he was wondering who the man thought the other seven were. So anyway, that kind of gives a little bit of insight on that. But there are few that find it. There were few in Noah's day, and there will be few that find the way of salvation. Because and it, it's out there. They just don't want to find it. In Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> look at verse 21. Revelation chapter 2, verse 21. Here, whenever he is speaking to the church in Thyatira, he's talking about this woman named Jezebel, chapter, or verse 20 tells us, it says, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed to idols. It says in verse 21, And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Again, God gives us all the time we need to repent. The deal is, are we willing to? And apparently this Jezebel here in Thyatira was not willing to. Well, you know, <clears throat> the Jews then and maybe now as well. And some Christians seem to think that since they are God's so-called chosen people, they have a license to sin. Paul points out in what we have just read that such is not the case. And even though they were looking back at the Jews there in Paul's time and Christians today as well, that despise God's forbearance, his goodness and his long suffering and they do that through their sins even though God still wants them to come to repentance now let's go back to <clears throat> Romans chapter 2 and let's look at verse 5 and there it states that even the very religious can still be lost Romans chapter 2, verse 5. It says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, how do we lay up wrath for ourselves? Look at James chapter 5, verse 3. James chapter 5, verse 3. It says, your gold and silver is cankered. Now remember, who is James writing to here? You go back to chapter 1, verse 1. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And then verse 2, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So he's talking to Christians. Again, going back to James 5, 3 again. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, <clears throat> and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Well, it's because of people's hard and impenitent hearts. Back over in Matthew chapter 6 now, look at verses 19 to 21. Matthew 6, 19 21. Here Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So the question then begs, Where is our treasure? because that's where our heart is. So what are we laying up? In first or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, again talking about here laying up wrath for ourselves, wrath against the last day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So God does have righteous judgment, and his righteous judgment is going to happen. The second coming of Christ is going to happen. We will be meeting him either in the air, as according to 1 Corinthians 15, or we will be meeting him to receive punishment on the day of judgment. And we will either receive punishment or we will receive a reward. Now, God will judge every person according to their works. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. The word render there is translated, uh, the definition of the Greek word translated render, and this is Strong's definition, says to give away, that is up, over, or back, etc. So we're going to receive back from God. He's going to give us what we deserve from his point of view. Now, according to their deeds, Thayer's third definition of the Greek word translated deeds is this, an act, deed, thing done. The idea of working is emphasized in opposition to that which is less than work. Well, we understand that we will, each one of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So we are going to receive back the things that we have done. We're going to be judged according to what we have done. And that is our works. And I find it interesting that so many people say, well, no works, you, you can't have works. Well, no, you can't have meritorious works that get you into heaven. That is not true. But we have to have those good deeds, those good works that God has commanded us to do. You look in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning there in verse 8. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, nothing we can do to make God give us his grace. But, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, our lives should be filled with good works. Just as we see here in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we're going to be judged. We're going to receive back the things, receive the things done in our bodies according to what we have done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And then you go over to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Do we have those good works, or do we have bad works? Well, back in Romans chapter 2 now, let's look at verse 7. If we are obedient, 
Heaven is our eternal destination. Romans 2, 7. It says, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Patient continuance. That is translated from a Greek word, and this is Thayer's definition of that word. Steadfastness, constancy, endurance. In the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Now you look at the phrase well-doing. The word well comes from a word that means good. This is Strong's definition. The word doing comes from a word that means work. So in other words, good work. And then the word seek there in Romans chapter 2 verse 7 comes from a Greek word that there says means to seek in order to find. You're seeking this. You want to find it. You could go back to book of Luke there, chapter 15, where it talks about the man who is seeking the lost sheep or the woman who is seeking the lost coin. They were seeking or searching in order to find. And that's what we are to do. Seeking in order to find glory, honor, and immortality. And we will receive eternal life. The word glory now. Let's look at that word. There's fourth definition of that Greek word means the glorious condition of blessedness into which is appointed and promised that true Christians shall enter after their Savior's return from heaven. The word honor, and Albert Barnes in his commentary gives a good explanation of that, and I quote, the honor and reward which shall be conferred in heaven on the friends of God, unquote. And then immortality, and this is Strong's definition of the Greek word, means incorruptibility, generally unending existence, figuratively genuineness. Now back in Romans chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 now, if we are disobedient, hell is our eternal destination. Romans 2 verses 8 and 9 says, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey righteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Now we look at the word contentious. Thayer defines the Greek word translated contentious this way. Apparently in the New Testament, courting distinction, a desire to put oneself forward, a partisan and factious spirit which does not disdain low arts. And we're not talking about paintings. We're talking about low life, the things that people do that are evil. And then it mentions those that do not obey the truth. Let's let Paul define that. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. It says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are those who do not obey the truth. You, know, you notice there are two different groups here that Jesus will bring flaming fire upon. The first group, those that know not God. You, know, you keep hearing people say, well, what about the man in the deepest, darkest part of Africa who's never heard about God? Well, right there, Jesus says, if he doesn't know God, he will be eternally punished. The second group there is those that hear the gospel and don't obey it. They will also face flaming fire. 
now to there it says that uh, they that obey unrighteousness well let's stay here in second thessalonians go to chapter 2 verses 10 to 12 and let paul explain that second thessalonians 2 10 to 12 it says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, or those that perish, they're perishing spiritually, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. In other words, they didn't want to hear that they did not receive the gospel. They didn't want to hear it. Verse 11, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. In other words, if they don't want to obey the truth, well, they believe what they want to believe. Verse 12, that they all might be damned who believed, who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the group that he's speaking of there. And then he mentions the things that are going to happen to those. The first thing we find there is in verse 8, indignation. And these are all going to be Thayer's definitions. Indignation comes from a Greek word Thayer defines as passion, angry, heat, anger, forthwith boiling up and soon subsiding again. The word wrath, and this is Thayer's fourth definition, anger exhibited in punishment, hence used for punishment itself. Tribulation, second definition of Thayer. Metaphorically, oppression, affliction, tribulation, distress, straits. And then anguish, Thayer's second definition. Metaphorically, dire calamity, extreme affliction. So you think about it. Those who obey unrighteousness are facing these things. And every person that does evil will receive the fiery indignation all of these things that we just looked at. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46 says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now back in Romans chapter 2, two verse 10, we have the contrast to those who are lost. In other words, we're looking at the other side, those who are following God. Romans 2.10 But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So this is the flip side. Glory, again, Strong's definition here, the word means glory is very apparent in a wide application. Honor, Thayer's second definition, honor which belongs or is shown to one. And then peace, Thayer's fifth definition. Of Christianity, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. Thayer's sixth definition of the same word, the blessed state of a devout and upright men after death. Blessed state. You know, this comes now in this life to those that work good works. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. It says, be careful for nothing. In other words, be anxious in nothing. Don't worry about things. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We can have the peace and the glory and the honor if we depend on God and not on ourselves. In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Romans 2, 11, plainly states, God is no respecter of persons, for there is no respect of persons with God. 
God doesn't care if you're rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, white, black, red, green, yellow, or whatever. God is no respecter of persons. In this life, judgment is often given with favoritism, but that is not so with God. Go to Acts chapter 10 and look at verses 34 and 35. Acts 10, 34, and 35. And this is at the household of Cornelius, a Gentile. It says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. That would also mean, if you turn that verse around, in every nation he that does not fear God and works unrighteousness is not accepted with God. And again, doesn't matter what social background we have, what color our skin may be, no matter whether we are wealthy or poor, it doesn't matter. God is not a respecter of persons. In Ephesians chapter 6 now, look at verse 9. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 9. says, In ye masters do the same things unto them. In other words, talking about servants. Again, we would look at it today maybe in the employer-employee relationship. It says, Forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect to persons with him. In other words, God didn't care at that time if you were a master or a slave, and he doesn't care now if you're an employer or an employee. God is no respecter of persons. In Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 25. Colossians chapter 3, verse 25. says there, But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done and there is no respect of persons. There is no respect of persons with God, and there should be no respect of persons in us. We are all human beings. We all put our clothes on as one person. As you hear it all the time, we all put our pants on the same way. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, look at that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 says, And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Again, God is no respect of persons. He judges us according to how our lives fit into his word. Now, God's impartiality is shown in many different ways, and we want to look at some of those ways. Back to Romans, but now look at chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So God has declared that all are under sin. Jew, Gentile, no matter what color or what social status or whatever you have, you're all under sin. We're all under sin. And God provided a Savior that is accessible to all. This is another way that God's impartiality is shown. He has offered salvation to everyone through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now let's look at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says there, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So God shows his partiality in that he made the Savior accessible to all. In John 3.16, <coughs> John 3.16, 
It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world, every human being God loves. And that's why he sent Jesus as our Savior. In Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. The word man there from the word anthropos, for every human being. God has made salvation available to every human being. Again, an example of his impartiality. And another way is that God extends the same gospel invitation to everyone. Go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 11 now, verses 28 to 30. Matthew, chapter 11 verses 28 to 30. It says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, just the opposite of that is sin. The yoke of sin is hard and the burden of sin is heavy but with Jesus this impartiality of God is shown in that the yoke of Jesus the yoke of God is easy and the burden is light you know, that goes right back to having that peace of God that passeth all understanding life is much easier when we throw our troubles or lay our problems on God. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Everyone has that opportunity because of the great impartiality of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we see that God extends the same condition of pardon to everyone. The verse reads, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Everyone that believes that God is, and everyone that diligently seeks God, can receive the condition of pardon that God has offered. That's another way that his impartiality is shown. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, God's impartiality shown. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There it is. We can receive salvation. Everyone has that opportunity. Again, the vast majority will not accept that opportunity. In Acts 17.30, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And we've already seen that God is long-suffering and that he wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to be saved. Again, another way that his impartiality is shown. In Romans 10, 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, God is showing forth his plan for our salvation, and everyone has the opportunity for salvation. In Romans 10, 12, and 13, Romans 10, 12, and 13, says, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the Lord, name of the Lord shall be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord. Well, how do we do that? Well, the scriptures explain that. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, we looked at earlier. And Anas told Saul of Tarsus, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. Obedience to God's plan of salvation. That's calling on the name of the Lord. And yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 down through verse 23, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Just because we say, Lord, Lord, that doesn't mean we are doing the will of the Father. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And you know, another way that God's impartiality is shown is that he requires one standard of conduct for everyone. Look at Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. It says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That fits in the Old Testament, that fits in the New Testament as well. And you notice God's impartiality is shown in that he has only one church for everyone. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Matthew 16, 18. And I say also unto thee, this is Jesus talking to Peter after Peter had made the confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, I say unto thee, also say, say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that confession that Peter had just made, I will build my church, singular, and the gates of hell, or Hades there, shall not prevail against it also singular. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says of God the Father about Jesus, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over the, all things to the church, singular again, which is his body, singular, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So God has made one church, not four or five hundred denominations and religions and all that. No, God made one church, and that shows his impartiality. In Ephesians 4, 4, Ephesians 4, 4 says there is one body, that being one church, one spirit, even as you're called, in one hope of your calling. In Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 23. Ephesians 5, 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, again singular and singular there, even as Christ is the head of the church, singular, and he is the Savior of the body, singular. Colossians 1, 18, let's go there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, again singular, the church, singular, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
you know, men and women have different roles in the church. There's no doubt about that. But when it comes to spiritual blessings and forgiveness of sins, all distinctions are erased. Look at Galatians 3.28. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Some try to misuse that verse and say women can have different roles and things like that. That's not what it's talking about. Whenever it comes to salvation, you look at verses 26 and 27 of Galatians 3. It says, For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When we have put on Christ, whenever it comes to spiritual blessings, forgiveness of sins, that's when all those distinctions are erased. And God is not a respecter of persons but he is a respecter of character. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So God respects character. Well, we're going to call an end to the lesson today there, and Lord willing, we'll begin in verse 12 in our next class. But I want to thank you for tuning in today, and we look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Way Media by visiting our website, BibleWayMedia.org. You can find all of our podcasts and all major podcast platforms. As always, we thank you for listening.